Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast 3.0. Yes, it's a, it's a new day. It's a new lineup. And we are also launching a brand new series in this episode we can't wait uh, to jump into. It's about church trauma. Yay! Uh, my name is Keith Giles. And I'm the author of uh, the Jesus Sun series and recently Solo Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. I am joined by my amazing co-hosts, Deep Breath, Katie, December, Shonda, and Matt. Say hi. Hi. Hey, everyone. It's Katie Valentine. Uh, I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control. I'm, I'm part of the 3.0 lineup, but I'm an old voice. So I'm going to stop talking and turn it over to the new voices. Hi, it's December Rose, your resident black chick and author of The Church Can Go to Hell because I want all the smoke. And I'm happy to be a part of Heretic Happy Hour. Thank you for tuning in. (laughs) My name is Shonda Ja. My booze mom loved my devotional, Liberating Love, 365 Love Notes from God. So I think you will too. Mm -hmm. And that makes me Matthew J. DiStefano. the 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 new producer i suppose not not former host still a part of the crew and excited to well ex- excited for december and shonda to be here kind of excited for a new series though once we get into it it might be not as exciting is not the right word but probably necessary um so that's going to have to wait until we get through some some things before that but um excited for another episode and excited to have an episode where we don't have a hotline um, I think Whoa. the hotline wow. had its had its place. Yeah. We loved we loved the hotline, but now we a have something tear else is trickling yes. down my a face. Single tear for in that in memoriam. Was. A deep yes. sadness and an emptiness in my soul. That it's but, gone. <laughs> but a time for a time for something new. So I'm gonna step aside for a second, have something to say, and then I'll let y'all talk about it. You know how there's like millions of planets that can sustain life? I wonder for the ones that have like human type life on there, I wonder if they have like their own Jesus. Like his name is not Jesus. Maybe it is. Probably not. But this person like comes and and dies for their sins and then is like miraculously resurrected on that planet. Do you think if there's a, a guy named Fred on some planet, Fred the Savior, 
that he died for our sins too, or or is it just like localized to that planet? And Jesus died for this planet, and then Sally died for another planet, and then Jermaine died for a different planet. Or do you think the sins cover all the planets? <laughs> you ever think about that? Ah. Uh. I was wondering when that was going to end. That was. <laughs> is there a time limit on how, how long these can be? But, but, but they're, they're stone thoughts, Keith. Time, time is an illusion. Time is an illusion. <laughs> stone. No, stone. I, I no longer have memoriam for the hotline because this is so much better now. <laughs> Different tears. Yes. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. You're yeah. right. I had to mute myself. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. Oh no! Don't don't mute yourself. We need that. That was oh, good. God. Let it out. Just let it out. Okay. Uh, oh, stone thoughts. All right. Uh, what do we all think? Well, it's uh, it's a great one to start off with. Uh, it's it is interesting. I, I guess to me, I can't help but wonder. Uh, what I love about it is the idea of like, of course, there's life on other planets, right? There has to be. But yeah, it is. It makes me curious. Like, if we ever do meet aliens, I want to know, like, what do they believe about God, and and how interesting would it be if there was like a blank slate, and there could be a uh, you know a civilization that develops completely apart from any concept of God the way we have, or you know, wouldn't it be cool if they didn't have any concept of sin or any need to be sort of uh, atoned or, or or forgiven? You know, would they have a God that would be like totally loving and completely uh, accepting? Like, it's it's an interesting concept. Who knows? I mean, there's so many billions of possibilities. I'm sure there's a Jermaine or a Sally or whatever out there somewhere, right? That's being- and I got to say, Keith, this is why I totally disagree with you about the piece being too long. Because like, we needed enough time to get to Sally and Jermaine. And That's Frank, right. Was it Frank? That's- yeah. Fred. 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 So, Fred Christ. like, my mind is going in so many directions. Like, is there like a planet Pootitang with yes. a savior named Tyrone or yes. something? And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Clearly, you were stoned when you recorded that. You, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm thinking that what would it be like if there was an entirely different civilization that had an entirely uh, different faith structure? It just, it really makes me think of where did our faith structure come from and the history of that? And when you go back, let's say, all the way to the civilizations, when they dig up these skeletons and these pyramids and they say, oh, this, we carbon dated this to whatever BCE or whatever the case. And you're wondering, you know, because we say that our scriptures and the Bible and all that is a little over 2,000 years old or whatever we want to say. And you wonder, well, what were they thinking? You know, we don't have to go to a whole nother planet. We could go 15 or 20,000 years back on this planet and be like, what's going on with y'all? Who's your God? What are you thinking? Because they they apparently weren't thinking about Jesus Christ that we know of because we, we've we dated our religion back so many years to the best of our knowledge. So if we just go back 15 or 20,000 years on this planet, that's like being on a whole nother planet. And I just wonder what was that faith structure like, you know? So... I read a I read a lot of sci-fi and uh the a similar question always comes up, but I love the way Stone Matt framed it, which is if Jermaine or Fred or Sally died on another planet, does that save us? Because the question in sort of bad sci-fi novels is always framed, does Jesus save them? 
<laughs> and uh, I will say the confession that, that most people make is that Jesus is savior of the world, not of the universe. So I'm not, uh, I'm not entirely sure. I do want to recommend a novel though for anyone that likes to explore this. It's called The Book of Strange New Things and takes place in the not too distant future where there's actually an evangelical pastor who goes to this other planet because the aliens there want to learn about Jesus. They like the New Testament. That's the book of strange new things for them. But it's a very well-crafted portrait of this pastor. And it's not stereotype. It doesn't fall into all the stereotypes. I thought it was really, really well done. But he, in the book, he has married a parishioner. Oh. In a, yeah, in a, uh, in a problematic kind of way. So I'll, I'll let that uh, tease everyone's appetites. But it's a really, it's a really uh, good book to follow up on Matt Stone's thoughts. Okay, so I've got a friend who's a scholar in um, the Quiche language. And so he works with indigenous Mayan people in Guatemala. And he tells the story of the first time the Spanish missionaries brought their Bible up to the indigenous Maya in the mountains of Guatemala. And they're getting the Maya people to translate the the Bible and they're like, okay, so there's this guy, Jesus. And the Maya are like, yeah, 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 we can say Jesus in this way in Kiche. And then they're like, and he died. And they're like, yep, we can translate that on a cross. Okay, we think we get the concept of a cross. We can describe that. And and good conquered evil. And the Maya were like, yeah, we we don't know what that means. And they're like, you know, there's good and and the Maya are like, yeah, we get that. And there's evil. Nope doesn't translate. There's no phrase for evil in Maya, in, in the Quiche language. And so I find myself thinking on other planets, Yeah, what do they need saved from? And so I yeah. am like tripping out on like, do they need salvation? And how do we define salvation? And so what would Fred and Sally and Germaine be dying for? Yeah. Which invites us to think about it for ourselves as well. That's so fascinating. If we can put this in terms of chocolate, there is a funny uh, joke I see going around around every Easter where Jesus comes back. <laughs> Jesus comes, yes, comes back yes. on another planet and the gist of it is something like uh, someone from Earth sees them and he comes back every year. He's like, what'd you guys, what'd you guys get to do? What'd you guys do to get him to do that? We give him lots of chocolate. What did you guys do? Yeah, what did you do when you came? <laughs> yeah, like, oh. Yes, so maybe, maybe Jermaine is given a lot of chocolate. Uh, to incite yeah. them to come back year after year. Okay, so that, y'all, that was our very, very first ever uh, Stone Thoughts by Matt. More to come. I can't wait because I haven't laughed that hard in a really long time. And uh, that's cheering me up before our uh, topic of the day. But even before the topic of the day, we have a fantastic heretic of the week. Um, she's an artist. She's a powerful woman. Y'all are going to love this interview. It's the heretic of the week. Hey everyone, I am Jennifer Knapp, singer, songwriter, former Christian music artist, and today, well, and for much longer, definitely a heretic. (laughs) Hi, Jennifer. (laughs) I was a little late on my high. That's okay. (laughs) What's up, Jennifer? This is December Rose. I just want to tell you that you were in great company today. Welcome to the Heretic Circle, <laughs> the Heretic Happy Hour. Why would anybody consider you a heretic? Well, I think I think the principal thing actually is the fact that, you know, as a Christian music artist, when I came out being an open, you know, out LGBTQ person, that was definitely grounds for people, uh, you know, other people's suspicions. But I think for a longer time than that, I've been uh, definitely kind of uh, very content actually in 
being in open dialogue about the questions about my faith, challenging my community. And uh, I think, you know, sometimes when we do that, you know, when we do that in particular ways and, and we don't just take what's on the plate, you know, served to us, I think sometimes, you know, you can get that label. So um, I've, I've learned long before I came out how to kind of, uh, you know, that I've been like definitely waiting for like to get the, the imprint stamped in brass, so to speak. <laughs> Yes, you, you get you get your uh, your trophy in the mail, right? Your your uh, membership card uh, as heretic. So, uh, Jennifer. So, in addition to that, I mean, yes, I guess nowadays that's it was certainly within Christian circles. You know, it's like, oh, Jennifer Knapp. Yes, she's that she's that gay, you know, Christian singer <laughs> who came out, right? But like you said, there's way way more that going on there. And so, I, I'm curious about like what other things, you know that you feel like might have qualified you as a heretic in, in general, like the kinds of things you questioned or the kinds of, you know, ideas that you, that you had even before or after that? Yeah. I mean, to be specific, I think there are some theological points that I can bring up in a second, but I think kind of the first context that I really kind of started to, to feel a need to kind of push against some of the theologies that I was experiencing was like, first, I didn't grow up in the church. So, you know, I like I was a new new to the culture and kind of learning on the fly and and certainly learning while I was performing out on stage. But one of the first ways that I felt that I think were, was in context of just being a woman. So uh, I think there's there's plenty of fuel there for most of us uh, who are women uh, inside of faith communities, especially with, you know, scriptures hanging around, like being submissive to men and what that might mean, whether or not, you know, when and where we're allowed to speak, to what we wear, what to, you know, all the way down to our dress. So there are quite a few things in there already that when I wasn't accustomed to being within Christian culture were quite alarming to me <laughs> when I, I came into a space that I entered into because of the invitation of understanding something that God saw me as uh, beautiful and whole yeah. And yeah. welcomed and as a person inviting me to understand the dignity that, you know, I didn't understand my own dignity. And that was alluring to me. And so uh -huh. when I get to this space and all of a sudden I get to these moments that I actually felt contested against the dignity that I was seeking. And I, I believed in some sense that God was telling me that I was worthy of, of, of having dignity. Like those were things that mm -hmm. I, I, I like when I look back, I'm going, Oh man, I've been a feminist probably <laughs> like launched into feminism as a result of my faith, probably more than I anticipated. So those kinds of questions that I had, or if I said, wait a second, this, I realized this is here, you know, just asking those kinds of questions, like how do I make sense of what your you know, what, what is in this sacred text, you know, and like, how do I make sense of a teaching that, uh, you know, says something about our, you know, women not being allowed to speak to the fact that I see women speaking everywhere and to the, you know, to have dignity in what I have to say and the invitation that I had to say it and then told yeah. how I should say it or how long I should speak, those kinds of things. And so I think it genuinely, like for me, you know, I think especially being young started like one would imagine, right? When you're a kid, you ask why, 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 you know, in a three-year-old fashion. And then as you grow up, you start going, uh, excuse me, <laughs> you know, we, we start to kind of really contest the answers that we're, get, we're given and not just taking them as rote and we're weighing them against the experiences that we have and not just, you know, wanting to take what somebody else tells us 
And at the same time, I, I would hope having a consideration that's respectful and not wanting to be rebellious in any sense of the way. I, I genuinely wanted to kind of understand these principles. So yeah, to start off, I mean, definitely just understanding that I was in a, in a already a, a minority or a minor, a marginalized position as a woman inside of my faith community, even though I didn't know it. I like, I, w- I woke up to it and said, you know, this is something that uh, I'm pushing against. So uh, yeah, kind of straight off the bat, feminism was the first place I started for sure. That is awesome. One of the things that stood out that you just said just hit me in the forehead about having a right to your dignity. And when I think about that in relationship with the church and institutional religion in general, I think about how there's so much shame associated with religion, especially for women. There's shame about your body. There's shame about your clothes. There's, There's so many rules and regulations that are, that the women are burdened with. And it's just, it, it becomes so toxic. And I'd just like to know, um, did you ever deal with a period or a time during your transition to be, be coming out or uh, out of institutional religion where you dealt with any shame or the shame that they try to project onto you? Yeah, you know, I've, I I would say that was, I, I definitely understand that that, that I mean, I would say to some degree, yes, that's the short answer. But in even going back to what I'm talking about, I was like the, that element of shame, like very early on in my experience as becoming a new Christian, I was, I was definitely moving out of that space. I already had shame. I understood what that was and I had good reason to be ashamed. Like I wouldn't contest it. And that was part of you know, the joy of being able to to come to a faith that wanted to release me from that shame. And then I get there, right? And much to my surprise, I didn't find any of that shame as I prayed, as I was reading my my Bible, as I was, uh, you know, engaging and, you know, getting a deeper understanding of my faith. And yet my community around me when I was, you know, like they're, like you're talking about, like, in this particular context of my womanhood, I was finding this new lot of shame in a different context. And I said, no, 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 wait a second. That's not what I came here for. And I kind of didn't really know any better. Like, I was like, no, I'm here. I'm here because of the promise of, of what, you know, of the joy that God called me into, you know? Uh So you don't get to take that from me because I, no, I'm done. (laughs) Like we're done with that. (laughs) And I, and I think, you know, like when you travel on like another 15 years in the, or I guess it was longer, I don't know what the timeline was, but I became a Christian in my early twenties, I think. And uh, I was with my partner around 28 years old, 29 years old, somewhere in there. So almost after a decade, definitely 10 years of celibacy that I can't get back. Um, right. Like, it's just like, oh man, like shoot a rewind. Uh, but <laughs> at the end of that, I, you know, by the time I got to that point, I, you know, that's 10 years of, of being in conversation with my community, kind of, you know, evolving and maturing in my ability to have a theological discussion about and understanding all of these weird little puzzle pieces that make up the weird intricacies that we have inside of any community that, 
is doing more than just, you know, I think sometimes we don't realize, right, what it means when we look at a scripture, right, that says something and it looks like it on its face value. And then not realizing it would step further back and start looking at, at as to what that might mean or what its context was at the time or why somebody would have said it in the first place um, or where we are today and what we've learned between then and now, like in a thousand years, yeah. 10 years or whatever <laughs> it is, like our willingness to be able to, to be able to kind of add that in is, is something that I, I, I hold very dear. And so I guess it's all to say is like that shame component for me by the time I came out was something I'd already practiced in a variety of different ways throughout, you know, and in, in the previous 10 years of that. And, and had, had felt like along that time, because I was so intently listening to it, that it was building brick by brick an opportunity to be, more understanding of what it meant as to be distinct, like to make the distinction between something in my own life, to have confidence with gratitude and, and without humility. Like when, like we're in the heretic zone, right? Am I a rebellion? It's like asking the question, am I just simply rebelling here to serve myself? Or am I genuinely after something that, that is willing to break down another thing that isn't, won't, uh, provide me a long journey and a fruitful and beneficial life? Well, I, am I willing to tear that down <laughs> in right, order to right. build up and risk the, all the things it means to lose and break and, and, and seem to be called a heretic? Am I willing to do that to build up something that I know will last? And, yeah. and that's a real challenge. And I had some practice things along the way. So by the time I came out, yeah, it was a new thing. I hadn't experienced that. I, I knew that it was going to be dramatic, that my code shift was going to be profoundly offensive to a lot of people. But I don't think that I would have been even capable of doing that had I not been able to reach back and like into that foundation of things that had actually, actually built up strong enough to weather the storm and it took mm-hmm. to a degree an act of faith because all along the way everyone tells you when you're when you're being heretical it when it appears you're being heretical and the jury may be out as to whether or not we've chosen rebellion or something to serve ourselves or to cherry pick or all the arguments when it comes to that critical moment of testing all you can do is go man I'm going to hold my breath you know and see if this holds because I thought I was building a good path. You know, I thought I was building a firm foundation and when the wind blows and it does hold, it's, it's to a great, I suppose, relief that, you know, that, that, that effort of all those previous times that you've done something wise, that you've done something mature, that, that you've done something that you, you genuinely have always sought and hoped to do something in line with what is holy, with what is beneficial, and that it's not just serving yourself, but preparing yourself to be the person you were created to be in wholeness and fullness, not just a benefit to yourself, but also hopefully down the road in benefit to your community as well. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, this is so I thank you. This is so good. I'm I'm so it's wonderful to hear you talk about this. And and I I mean, so you touch on something I think is so critical and so important that I know a lot of people listening, and maybe especially a lot of young girls listening or young women listening, might find inspiring, but also at the same time, like, like how did you do this? Because like, so you, I love that you're pointing out, like you, you could see immediately you felt a tension between what God was saying to you about who you were 
your identity, your value, your, wor- your worth, your acceptance, right? You're affirming exactly who you were. And then sort of a faith community that was telling you something opposite of that, right? Bringing on you shame and guilt and fear and condemnation and all that stuff. And for a lot of young people, men and women, uh, especially if you're a young Christian, when, the, when your faith community is telling you those things, often you trust their, because oh, they, they've been Christians longer than I have, and maybe yeah. they've got a seminary degree. Uh, you know, he, my pastor Bob, he's got an MDiv. I mean, Lord, I mean, what do I know? If he says it, it must be true, right? So you, the, the temptation, of course, then is to not listen so much to your own connection with God that's, that's affirming all these the beautiful things and to listen to the shame and the guilt and the fear and the condemnation instead. For, for many people, doing what you did seems impossible. You know what I mean? It seems like how, how, I mean, you just said you did it. Like, oh yeah, I just didn't listen to them. Yeah, but how? Because like a lot of people are like, what do you mean you just didn't listen to them, right? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, I think, and I'm, I expect fully December to see you. We're on video conferencing. I, I fully expect every time there's another woman when I'm around, when I'm saying this, to, to see a hand go up and hear an amen. I mean, there's always, <laughs> like, there's always a space, particularly I think as women in those environments, and even not even, it doesn't even mean being in a faith community, but living in the world, there's, there's so much patriarchy, misogyny, male voices that, that actively teach women to undermine the voice, our inner voice. It is very difficult to hold on to that inner voice. I, I really don't know how I did that other than to champion for myself this and, que- and begin to question how much, like, or at least, I don't know. It's, it's part awareness, part of just the awareness of saying, I don't know the difference between the voices that I hear. Like, what is a voice of God in my head? What is my voice right. in my head? Is yeah. this my mother's voice in my head? My dad's voice, my church's yeah. voice, my past. How you know, like women I, I know particularly relate to how the cacophony of voices that we are sensitive to in, you know, in the silent space between our ears. And as a, as a person who is genuine about my faith, I didn't want to be, ca- I genuinely, weirdly, I just didn't want to be cavalier either because I was, didn't grow up in the culture, I was also equally uncomfortable to say, to find one of those voices and say, this is God's voice. Like, I I, I just, I'm personally uncomfortable with that. But I, I, I guess the thing, one of the markers, and I didn't, I know I wouldn't have pointed to this mile marker, like in the timeline until I was definitely like, or like leaving Christian music and, and really needing time to, like one of the reasons that I would tell you that when I stepped away from like Christian music and after actively participating in my faith communities and making myself available to a community that felt toxic to me, one of the things that I remember the most is just being so confused because I didn't know which voice in that cacophony was mine. I yeah. was lost. And I was no, uh, that lostness I knew threatened my own life. It it threatened my ability to want to live anymore. Like I genuinely, it it was that painful. And even at cost to losing a community, to losing a church, to losing my career, I wanted to live. So I was willing to lose everything 
just to live. And Mm -hmm. that's the best way I know how to describe the willingness for me to risk that much to survive. And it didn't matter to me how much at that point, like I, I had attempted to do everything else and please all of those other voices so much so that I knew that I wasn't going, there was going to be, I was reaching the limit to be able to do that because I was no longer going to be there. And I just knew that there was something inherently wrong. There, there was another voice inside of my head that says, please, I want to live. Please, this is wrong. Please don't touch me. Please don't tell me what to do. Please don't. Please listen. Please listen to me. And, uh-huh. and it's, I just couldn't not listen to that anymore. I didn't know whose voice it was. I didn't know for a long time whether it was my own. And it took me a long time to trust my own voice. And I, for me, like I point that out, like I realize it's not a really functional answer, but if we do not value and know where to find our inner voice, it is impossible for us to know to have a communion with God if that's what we see. And so to I think another context that I would lead people to and, and somebody I often reference very much so is Henry Nowen. And Henry Nowen has a book called Reaching Out. And in that, one of the most critical parts of that journey for me was Nowen, it was another voice that I actually respected ironically, like a cisgendered, well, what presented to me at the time was a cisgendered white male of, you know, in clergy, giving me this permission to say, no other thing outside of you will complete you. You, it is absolutely critical. And I will affirm in you a space of solitude for you to know who you are and do the work of you. To get to know, you know, to get to know you, you know, that's solitude. That's not loneliness. That's not marginalized. That's not isolated and thrown out. That's knowing that you can go to a place that is sacredly yours alone because that, that really the only person in that space, right? For us, whether it's in between your ears or in your heart or in your chest or however you describe that is ultimately extraordinarily lonely. It's only you. And to be able to find God means to be able at some point, I think, to be able to be content, like to find the courage enough to be alone enough to make an invitation to this other voice into that space. So from now and now and describes it as being able to, to transform or, or get yourself into this place and a- apply some discipline toward converting your loneliness and that potential isolation into a place of solitude, which ironically, I think is actually kind of an Eastern kind of meditation, meditational thought. But I'm delighted over the last 20 years to see us talk about centering prayer, to see us actually make an invitation to be able to actually challenge ourselves in a point of discernment that takes a great deal of investment, discipline, and maturity to be able to say, oh, here's a quirky voice in my head. It's God, you know, (laughs) to to someone else and to give somebody else authority over our life who actually has no right to it and has no permission to it. And to not know whether or not we are actually authorizing that permission. It is a very great work. So 
I mean, in the how, that's a big, long-winded way of saying, I think the critical place to start is actually in the work of self. And that's, that sounds so, that's heretical move that I've been pushing against for well over 20 years. It's a push to know oneself, it's a push to know knowledge. And the same knowledge that we seek in God is looking for something that I wouldn't put a capital T on. I don't think it's stagnant or a rule or a law, but it's to know, have knowledge of, to be with and to know it and to be able to, to, to be able to receive it in a way that we're not trying to change it or change ourselves, but to live with it and to understand whatever it is, to be able to the same way that God says I am, is the same opportunity I believe that we have to and a model of in Christ and in our faith can t- lead us toward that place of being able to say, I am. Peter Gomes said it. I am what I am and I've got what I've got. And <laughs> I love to find to find peace with that and dignity with that is critical even to where we come up with conceptions of theological sin or, or original sin, right? The original sin is dealing with the problem is how come I'm not satisfied with myself? How come I see myself and I'm critical and know that I have good cause to be critical of myself? Why would God love me? Look at this pile of crap, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Spot on. You wouldn't argue it, right? How do we deal with our existential anxiety about ourselves? And that I think is an invitation to self that, that is really counterintuitive to where we've trended to the, this point in time in our Christian history to teach us and particularly women, particularly people of color, people, people of sexual orientation or non-binary, all of the marginalized things that, that all of those, any of us who have a sense of having to feel like we have to fight to have our voices be heard, when you understand that and we don't know that, our empowerment comes by knowing the voice that God gave us and to be able uh-huh. to discern the difference and to put in the discipline to be able to find that voice, to know that voice, and to be able to be willing to test and amend our understanding of that voice in an ongoing dialogue as we journey through our, you know, not just knowing ourselves, because the next step that now one would point out is that, you know, in that solitude, we must know then and be willing to step out from a place of hostility to the world around us and into a, a transition of hospitality. So, to be able to not be in a position of defense or com- combat against the world around us, but to figure out that we're secure and enough in ourselves to have agency, power, and to bring fruitfulness to the world around us. And we can only do that if we start, in my opinion, from a source of knowing who we are in the dignity and wholeness in which God sees us. Done. Yeah. Yeah. Off Beautiful. the box. Look, we can really raise our offering. We're going to pass the offering plate for uh, evangelist Jennifer Knapp right now. But (laughs) one of the things, that that is so wonderful. I am just enjoying um, listening to you and hearing your heart. One of the things that you said that stuck with me a few uh, minutes ago was you said you had a code shift. And when you said that, I just thought, my goodness, you know, what prompted the code shift? When I think about code shift, I think about programming. And, you know, uh, if you take any kind of computer or tablet or phone or whatever the case is, you know, it's going to do what it's programmed to do. It's not operating under its own agency. It's not autonomous. You know what I'm saying? It's going to do whatever the manufacturer programmed it to do. 
And when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how many people have uh, have turned off the default for the manufacturer's programming and accepted somebody else's programming, have turned the volume way down on their voice, that inside voice that they have. You know, when when I'm hearing, I'm like, you know, there's so many people that have let somebody else mute the voice that they have or told them that voice that you have, you can't trust it. You need to trust me. You need to trust me. Yeah, and I love I love your metaphor. I'd never really thought about it that way, December. Like in terms of like a, a computer and an operating system, right? A Mac's a Mac, and a PC is a PC. And there are some things that you can cross modulate and stuff, whatever. But the operating system is native to the success of that that computer running well, right? Um, so I love that that metaphor. But I'd also say like. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say like my narrative doesn't say feel like, I don't think it's accurate for me to say that I had the code shift so much as I, the inf- the new information when I share like my coming out in particular. And I think this is where a lot of LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus people, I, I feel like I get a commu- like my community taught me this kind of language a bit. Uh, but I think we probably relate. Like it, when we share this information that, w- you know, we've probably, we know is in our operating system and it's part of the fight that LGBTQ community have had with the church, right? That puts us in this heretical position is the code that's trying to be written on our hard drives to be straight, <laughs> you know, is is like, we're like going incompatible, like the whole, you know, like smoke's coming out of the machine. It's broke, you know, it's breaking the the whole thing down. And we know that something's not working. And so the code, the code shift is actually in the announcement. My coming out wasn't a code shift for me. It's code shift for everybody else around me that's anticipating Uh me, particularly because I know that I present passively as an obvious woman. You know, I don't take that for granted. Like people look at me and they assume and easily so that I'm a woman. But, you know, what's going on on the inside might not be the case, right? For some people who've experienced the need to, to you know, for, for not being, cis, you know, cisgender or, you know, seeing their world in, as binary. Like some people are kind of in the middle or on a spectrum. So that code shift, when we announce it to other people, is is its own you know, is and has been historically for LGBTQ plus community of breaking the, you know, you become a heretic to a, a heterosexual world. Everyone tells you you're operating under the wrong OS. And when you listen and know what your operating system is, it makes it easier to know that you're going to, you're going to upset everybody else by essentially saying, stop trying to rewrite my code. Yeah. And you get to the point of strength where you say, I am, I am, I am not accepting, you know, code writers anymore. <laughs> I'm not accepting the updates. Have you ever um, got ready to turn your computer off? There you go. Oh my God, I love it. You ever had to turn yes. your computer off and automatically it comes up and you can't shut it down and restart it without it updating. Yeah. And you oh my God. God. go in <laughs> and say, don't do this because oh, yes. it's December. I'm just, this is what's going on in my mind. And then there's always, uh, you know, whoever writes that code, they're, they're not infallible either. And this is the issue that I have with the church where this yeah. is it, this is the God, this is it. Whoever writes that code, because man is behind it, there's always error. That's why you have something <laughs> roll out and there's a beta and then there's 1.0 and 1.5. And there's a patch. And there's a patch. Every, to every, the virus roll out, <laughs> every time you roll out, it has a glitch. 
right? Yeah, and there's yeah. a glitch in that code that says that what the operating system that I was born with is not right. And if you don't look like me, act like me, sound like me, love like me, think like me, vote like me as of lately, you ain't safe. <laughs> God don't love right. you. There's collateral damage for that code shift. Yeah. So when you decide, look, whatever the collateral damage is going to be, you know, I, I'm, I, it's worth this, this shift. It's worth it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd say that I, like, I mean, that was, and I know that a lot of people that are, you know, the, a lot of these kind of conversations that we're having now as a larger community is, you know, what's amazing is it's actually like sneaking up with a level of diversity that I'm actually really surprised about. You know, it's no longer just me. I like, I no longer feel isolated in a world. Just, I don't feel surrounded by white people anymore. And I don't feel surrounded by men telling me what to do anymore. Like, I feel like I connect with so many other people from different areas about the same process of what we're talking about here. And, and, and the only, the only thing that like, it's just so, it's so heartbreaking. But if you're out there and you're in that space of saying, of knowing what it means to be like going, listen, I know I'm at the end of an alley here. Like the computer's going to explode. I'm going to break up. And it kind of doesn't really matter because I know if I, you know, walk out of this alley and allow somebody else to rewrite my, you know, to rewrite my code or to do all these other things, the computer's going to blow up anyway. So it's not going to work. It's going to break down. Smoke's going to come out. It's all going to be bad. So, you know, and it's, it's a really desperate position to be in. I don't necessarily advise it, but I, one, one of the ways I, I remember articulating it when I walked away from my career and I, I did so thinking that I did that simultaneously and with the purpose to get away from the Christianity that was killing me. I did so, I did so just basically going, well, kind of like an ultimatum to God, I guess. Like, if you don't love me the way that I am, I got nothing left. Like, you're, right. you know, if it's true that I'm burning, like, you know, if it's true that I'm destined for some kind of eternal punishment or even punishment in this world, you know, in this lifetime for where I need to go, then so be it. Because, you know, when you hit rock bottom, you got no place to go, straight up or sideways. So, you know... <laughs> So I was just like, I'm not, I genuinely hope you hear me. Like, I'm a little bit pissed if this is the narrative. <laughs> like, if this turns out to be true, then you're not a God I want. Right. And that I was willing at that point to be responsible for that decision. And two, if you're the God that I, I believe is the possibility that might even exist in the universe, that I am willing to bet my life on it. Because uh-huh. I'll risk my life for love. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. risk my life for my own dignity. Most of yeah. us will. Yeah. And I, I hope that if this is true, I anticipate that if this is true, that I won't be unique in this. Mm-hmm. And right. that is to a degree a defense of pride. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I've been in so many of these conversations. It's been a rising tide to the point right now inside of Christian circles. We now have this quote unquote, movement of deconstruction and hopefully now slash reconstruction. Yeah. And I I do, I have to admit uh, amongst you that there are some days where I am so pissed off. I I, I go between the, 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 the feeling of being mad to used to bored (laughs) of going, I've been doing this my whole life. Yeah. How are you guys just getting here? 
at the same time, <laughs> I don't, I, I really actually kind of come back around because I really do genuinely believe that any new point or to, again, I'll go back to December. I love it. The, the ver the, as we grow in ourselves, I would, I like that metaphor so much. It's like, I'm, I'm not gen, like when everybody thought I code shift and they thought I went from, you know, nine to 10 in OS, mm-hmm. I didn't even do that. Like it was like a 1.0. And now this yeah. year, this decade later, it's like a 2.0. It's like this evolution and this growing ex- excellence and the forming and creation of myself. I'm not attempting to be any new. I'm attempting to evolve. And so I guess what I'm saying is like in that awakening, we all arrive at those critical moments. You can be a cisgendered white male and have an arrival of critical awareness that utterly feels like a code shift between you and your community around you. And I think that is the thing I've been arguing as a queer person for a decade now. It's like, I'm not unique. What I am going through right now is not just about sex. It's about my dignity. It's not about somebody else's plumbing. And it's not about my plumbing. It's something internal to my spirit and the core of who I am and how I perceive. And will you join with me? as I do this, because I need you to help inform and test and not harm. Like give me an environment in which as I moved out of my solitude and this work on what I understand about myself, will you, will you allow me to space to learn, fail, you know, uh, re-understand my code. I don't actually think I'm rewriting anything. I'm actually just learning the script. I'm being, you know, I'm arriving at a place in my timeline and any of us are, I, I, I think is what I would, I would say is like this level of deconstruction isn't actually to me in my mindset, although it feels like a crumbling of anything, it's a realization and awakening to something that is not weathering what we ask it to do. A theology that does not hold itself is not a theology that we have been correct in teaching. Right, right. Anything that I say here today, uh, you know, I might look back at this 10 years and go, I am full of shit, or I might, oh, let me amend that. Or, you know, uh, the only thing I can say is that in any of the things that I've done, the only, the only kind of comfort one has when one looks back is knowing that you've been earnest when you've been wrong and seeking something that is actually holy, not just for yourself, but in the long run, something that when you bring it out and you share that cherry, quote unquote, cherry picking, self-serving opportunity actually will find connection and community with others. And more and more queer people have come out. We've seen that queer people aren't lost. Queer people do want to connect to God, have rich, valuable things, you know, to share with us about their journey that informs our greater understanding as quote unquote, uh, you know, the body of Christ. Ugh, I can't believe I just said that, you know, I've, <laughs> I've resisted including myself in the body of Christ for so long that it, it pains me to say it now. It sounds so cheesy and I'm horrified that it will be misunderstood. But what yeah. I believe that we are, we are, are champion to is not just an individual journey. That is a gift to be able to have it. And really the only gift we have and how lonely that is. 
but a responsibility that we have to that health and dignity actually translate because sick, you know, hurt people hurt people. And if we build narratives that are built out of harm or build out of judgment, prejudice, uh, or self gain, though, and as we are seeing, right, in a theology that is absolutely collapsing because it was built on this idea that it was about authority that didn't understand what it meant to be in privilege. It, what privilege meant. It's, you know, authority is having confidence and knowledge, not power, not power. I don't believe God's authority in our lives is a power that dominates us. Even though our Bible actually tells that story of domination. What I will say, if you read the Bible from its beginning to its end, you actually see within page one and the last page, an evolution of us being able to comprehend that we began in this place of seeing God as over us. Yeah. And now all of a sudden we get this narrative that has us an invitation with God. What? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. The yeah. door, the, the gates are never shut and the invitation is open. If you're thirsty, come yeah. and drink. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it reminds me of like uh, Bishop Gene Robinson uh, as, as often will often say, he's like, yes, I believe in the sacred text and that scripture. But I also believe that we're to some degree that we're not done writing the story of our faith. And absolutely, I, that was some paraphrase that I, I got from him. And I kind of, I, I think it's interesting that there are other faith traditions that actually have, you know, sacred texts for them uh, and their, their body of wisdom that spans, you know, thousands of years and we yes. shut ours off and yes, you know we, it, yeah, we, we, yeah we we said it we're done god you're done the spirit <laughs> is done whatever yeah. god wanted to say he said yeah. it two thousand years ago and that's it right it's so stupid <laughs> which you know which to me is actually i'm mad about like i'm even understanding yeah, that in, in, in context of you know with with so much of the conversation that have you know awoken white folks right to their whiteness <laughs> Um, I've understood that and understanding like my community, like my, my community, like the people in my gene pool have not been very good at, at sharing their wisdom that one generation to the next. And as I get in contact with other community, like for black communities who actually have a lot of, of, uh, of, uh, like communal awareness and, and practice of wisdom within you know trust and expectation of community care and elder wisdom that my gender like my my people have not taught me and i'm so mad and i part of that is even laced the reason why i mentioned it's laced up in the christian evangelicalism that we see today it's very white it's so fucking white Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not mad about it, but I'm just going, you know, we have locked ourselves away and we are perpetuating this thing. And now as we reach out to those voices who now have enough bandwidth, how, what a blessing it is that we encourage and see that, you know, that, 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 that is actually a gift that speaks something to, to my great joy and, you know, to be able to transform even my own shame that I push against and you're afraid, right? When somebody calls you a heretic, it's so scary because you know that you're breaking something. The good news is, is that it, like you should be breaking it. It needs to be broken. It's bondage. It's bondage. It is bondage. And and for any of us to have the courage for our own selves and those moments of desperation to get to that point, to me is critical and, to be willing to go through another brokenness and to reboot your own system and to be able to go that process again and again and again is really 
a holy challenge for each one of us to do that. And it takes a lot of good faith to ourselves and a lot of trust within our community and, and diversity and openness and grace. It's impossible for us to do that if we think that even only you know, when we go out of those private places that my journey is the only journey. I I don't get to write your code, but I get to listen. And when I listen well, I learn like, oh my God, like I'm so like, you don't even know December. I'm I'm so taking the (laughs) operating system and running hardcore. Do it. Do it. We're we're overriding. No, there's a difference. Yeah. And that's where, that's, in the, that's the transformation that I think that, that when I look at sacred text and I look for trying to understand what it means to be in the body of Christ, where two or more are gathered and how do I make sense of that? And why do I, in one hand, feel I'm never going back to those four walls. Don't ask me to be a member. I don't want to be a member. Screw you. I'm not. And how uh-huh. do I make sense of that going, I miss my community. I miss liturgy. I miss ritual. And I, you know, how do I make sense of that? And how uh-huh. do I make sense of the fact that I need people, I want people, and I feel like also uneasy because I know that I'm disconnected if I don't somehow figure out a way to gather. We're having church here. And that I think we're getting at least maybe a little bit closer, maybe not closer, but we're evolving together to a degree, hopefully, of maturity or, or something. We're realizing we do need one another and how important that is for us to be prepared and in collaboration and in conversation for what, not just, you know, the parlance of our time would be, what does a safe space look like, right? Yeah. I I don't know that I'm totally comfortable with that. What is a prosperous, like what is a a sustainable, holy place look like? What does a holy place do? And how am I, how am I, how am I in, how can I remain in that place without disrupting that holiness? That's yeah. really our charge. And holy crap, does that utterly transform the way that I would talk about sin, the way I would yeah. talk about purity, the way I would talk about what shame does, you know, the way yeah. I would talk about duty. I am no longer on a task to be pleasing to God for the sake of just getting my merit badge. Yeah. I am, I am being vi- invited and being part of this larger organic system that depends on me and invites me to do something really extraordinary. And that's an invitation that's really hard. That, to me, is good news. At the end of the day, that's good news. And it's, it's, it's really surprising me as much as anybody else. I'll be like, I was ready to wash my hands of it. I still am. Today, I'll be like, I know I've been on my soapbox. I'll, tomorrow, I'll be pissed off about something and wanting to go, oh, screw it. But yeah. it, it's compelling. It leads you forward. And that's a kind of energy that's really hard to manufacture on your own. It's of spirit, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it. Yeah, that's so good. This is so beautiful. I mean, Jennifer, I, um, I was, I'm so glad. I, was, I, I just hearing you talk, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad we got you to, to be here <laughs> together week for, for this podcast. Um, and actually what I was thinking as you were talking was, you know, Jennifer, if you don't have one, you really should seriously consider starting a podcast because uh, uh, I love you what you're the saying. Rest of everybody else, I'll sign I'm you telling up. you, what are you waiting for? You got <laughs> Come on. Hey, you know, we could, we could pull up another chair. You could be another co-host here. I mean, we would love to have you. Well, you're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> off the record, I'll, off the record, I'll tell you anytime you want to guess, you risk it at me, like hogging the microphone, because this is what I do. Like, <laughs> well, maybe you should do a solo podcast. You know, you don't need to co-host. Just go turn on the microphone oh and go. 
Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. But I mean, it's, yeah, I I kind of get embarrassed sometimes about my own willingness to pontificate. But I mean, I really am passionate and and the joy that that's been sustaining for me is, 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 is something I genuinely think about. I mean, you know, as we laugh our way through this, it's, it's, it's really not an easy thing to be in a space as a, you know, I know what that's like. It's, it's very lonely. Yeah. It's very hard. It's very, very scary for any of us, no matter what our context is in faith or outside of it, to be able to have a faith that I actually, you know, I, I still have faith to a degree in Christianity. Uh, there's a language here and there's a community of people who under something, understand something deeply spiritual of, mm-hmm. of, of being able to find healing, health and support and how, how that's tied to something so big, so much beyond ourselves that we would label it God. It is, yeah. I don't care what you believe, how you believe, but I will fight every single day now that I'm healthy enough and strong enough to have energy to not build up a wall that wants to close you in. And that's what religion mm-hmm. does. Faith that's is right. something entirely different. And yes. that. I'll be called a heretic for every day. And I think most of us here are, are, are in that space are, are have an ambition that this, this little glimmer of light that we see in the darkness might actually lead us to some place that causes something to grow. And that's a really wow. beautiful thing to see, especially in our times when we're all fractured, we're polarized and, you know, every part of the, the wall, every part of the, of the authority is fighting and resisting to its death. And, you know, it's just, you know, I'm going, okay, well, I'm going to die at some point. I hope, you know, I hope that I'm dying for the thing that I'm, I know that I'm living now while I'm dying. The older I get, I know my impending death is getting closer. (laughs) uh, I'm getting more and more peace with that because I I know that I'm living now. And that's, that's a thing that I, I, I share my time out of absolute joy of watching every eye light up knowing that they've seen the same thing I've seen, you know, that it's mm-hmm. selfish to a degree because I'm like, Oh my God, did you see that come over here? And to yeah. find a community that's able to kind of have that and, and to, to accept each of us for ourselves, the responsibility that comes with your, each of your epiphanies to help somebody in your community. You don't have a pulpit. Like it's not about having a pulpit. It's about not having a pulpit and still doing that. Yes, so, exactly. To what it means to be a brother and sister. Like you, yeah. you know what, you know, you, you really do want to hold the hand of those you love and, and be with them on their journey. And I, I guess that's our challenge here. So it's, it's my honor and privilege. Thank you very much um, for being, yeah. for, uh, yeah, tolerating me. I love the invitation and, yeah. um, but I, I love knowing that it matters for, for other folks. So. Yes, it really does. So let us know, uh, let our listeners know, uh, Jennifer, what do you have anything coming up they should know about? Uh, how can they find out more about you and support you and all that other stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, the easy one-stop shop place is jennifernapp.com. Of course, uh, everything that I'm doing, it has some kind of link there, you know, to all the socials and all the stuff. Uh, as my friend Levi Lowry likes to say, but I mean, I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of like intimate, more intimate hangout, uh, on patreon.com forward slash Jennifer Knapp. Uh, the, I do, you know, I do shows that I'm doing a, a variety of different things right now. I'm doing online shows, public and private. I'm doing a couple of side projects. I'm trying to get my podcast 
not necessarily about religion, but I, there's probably at least three different kinds of podcasts that I could do, but I'm just trying to get one up and going by the end of the year. I'm going out on the road again this fall. So there'll be tour dates that are being announced. And I'm working on a new project with a friend of mine. That's probably the closest thing to a faith-based record I've done in some time where going back and we're pulling out a lot of uh, hymns from a variety of different places and folk songs. They're all kind of the same ilk, but like we're pulling out hymns from the deep South to uh, old English tunes from the 1600s. Like it's crazy. Like uh, wow. but he's a bluegrass guy. So he knows roots and Appalachian music uh, to Australian folk music as well. So we're kind of going across this wide community of people talking about like who are reaching out sometimes to God and sometimes desperately, desperately not knowing that that's, you know, not necessarily directly to God, but to others. So we're in this project of, of kind of drawing back to, I guess, the voices of our past. I kind of understand that we're, you know, as musicians in, in this legacy, bringing them up and sharing them in a new context. And mostly just as two musicians, we're just enjoying that time together. So if you're not aware of that artist, Levi Lowry, L-E-V-I-L-O-W-R-E-Y. Um, that's probably the thing that most people will hear uh, news that I'll be most active with in the coming months. But um, yeah, so otherwise, I'm yeah, I'm trying to do all of those things while uh, I'm, you know, trying to travel and do a show, some shows this fall as well. So awesome. Well, stay, stay active, stay busy. Uh, I love what you're doing. Love your music. Love your voice. And uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us today. I, I really appreciate it, you guys. Uh, I really appreciate the conversation. It was a joy. Wow. Jennifer Knapp, love you. Thank you so much for being our Heretic of the Week. And man, December, you and Jennifer are like sisters. Uh, it, it was awesome just to see you guys really hit it off. That was, it was great. Yeah, she's like my sister from another mother. Uh-huh. <laughs> in, a, in another in another life on another planet. <laughs> she, she might have been my girlfriend, but in yeah. this life on this planet, she's my sister. So I don't know. I'd love her personality, her uh, perspective on faith. Definitely her journey closer toward God and away from religion is something worth listening to. I hope she comes out with a book someday uh, so I can read it, but I, I, everything, everything about that conversation is just so inviting, especially for those who are on this deconstruction journey. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. So we're kicking off a new series on church trauma. Keith, at the beginning of the show, I heard you say uh, church drama, and I was like, oh, this is going to be way more fun than I thought what we were going to do. But no, church trauma. Um, And we're going to be focusing today on Ravi. Zacharias. Y'all are going to have to keep, forgive me because it's he's Indian and I keep wanting to say it the way you would say it, which is Ravi Zacharias, but you can help me get it right. I want to acknowledge that we're recording this just after the news about Matt Chandler. We're aware that issues of church trauma are very alive. And so we want to just take a moment to acknowledge that If it will not be helpful to you to listen to this, particularly if you have any experience with sexual abuse, if you have any experience with church trauma, we want to acknowledge that's what we're going to be delving into when we want you to take care of yourself because that's a critical part of our own healing journeys and our religious work as well. So with that awareness and while sending love to everybody who has had to endure that 
tragedy, that trauma, that injustice. Uh, we're going to go ahead and plunge into this, not because it's necessarily the most fun subject, but because it's a really important one. With that, where should we start with Ravi Zacharias? Wait, how do you how do you really say it? I think it's Ravi Zacharias, but I actually think he took that name following, you know, the uh, Zechariah like pronunciation. So I'm yeah. totally Indianizing it when it's not supposed to. Zacharias is probably what they call him at the family reunion. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I don't know that we need to do yeah. him a lot of favors either any which way, but <laughs> fair. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, and so specifically, this is talking about like this ab- allegations of sexual inappropriate conduct, misconduct, maybe, yeah, maybe violence as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we, you know, we were trying to figure out what our series should be kicking off the new lineup. And um, we just felt like this was an important topic. And there is so much of it going around. And, and up to this point, I don't think we have really addressed it in a direct way that, I mean, we might have referred to it in a certain, certain episodes here and there. But to really just take time and talk about it, then Shonda, thank you for um, also caring about our listeners because there are so many things here that might really trigger people, or we don't want to we don't want to you know revisit any trauma or harm on people emotionally. And but but it is something we felt like it was important to talk about um, because again, it keeps going. We, we were joking before we hit record, like you know, wouldn't it be great if if this sort of thing. That we're gonna, the things we're going to cover in this series, and you know, like, oh, this rarely happens. You know, it's just such a such a fluke, such a random kind of almost never happened kind of thing. It, 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 that's not the case, however. I mean, we we could probably almost do an entire podcast on this because uh, before you, by the time you got to the end of your list, you'd have another one like Matt Chandler pop up, and like, oh, well, and let's cover that one because it just keeps happening. So we wanted to talk about just acknowledge the, these kinds of things and hopefully address them in a way that's helpful and healing. Um, and maybe even talk about why these kind of things keep happening. So I don't know, I guess, I guess to start off, we should probably, for people that don't know anything about Ravi Z- Zacharias or Zacharias, you know, who was this guy to begin with? And why was it such a big deal when things started coming out about him? Well, I'll just, I'll just say, I mean, I know generally I, I'm going to be stepping away and you're going to be hearing less of me, but I'll start by saying this just simply because I grew up in a Christian Missionary Alliance um, non-denominational church and Ravi Zacharias was one of the preeminent speakers from that non-denominational denomination. So I guess I could just, I can give like maybe a little bit of not like the historical background of Christian Missionary Alliance because I don't know if that's necessarily important, but just like my experience within one of their churches and there's many because it's kind of like this like many of the, you know, uh, what do you even call them? I mean, they're a church, but they're also like... Denominations. Yeah, yeah, they say they're non-denominational, but this hierarchy, this structure, just my experiences from it, I'm not surprised by by much of it because to it seemed like my experience, it's like there was this um, pastoral and leadership and board divide between the people. And yeah. it was very hierarchical. It was very patriarchal. It was very... There were even like many scandals in the church that I went to. There was dynamics of power and that's going to be... So like even in any of these scandals, any of these abuses of power, even when there's not something that's criminal, there's still this like power structure. So there was a a, um, a pastor who was having an affair with one of the, you know, uh, office staff. And so even in that work, like it's it's like... 
this workplace dynamic where there's a powerful man and, and a not so powerful woman, there's that, there's that setup, right? And so I think, um, in any of the denominations, CMC and MA being one of them, it sets it up for these things to happen. And so with Ravi, from what I understand what happened, and I, I've got some stuff here from the Christian Post and Christianity Today, is that there was an accusation or an allegation of misconduct in 2017. And CMA looked into it, had a preliminary sort of, not even an investigation, but a preliminary look into it and said that there was no evidence to pursue it any farther, right? To not actually have an investigation. There were no grounds to strip him of his credentials or anything like that, which is another thing we can get into. And so, but then in 2020, in 2021, posthumously after he had passed away, then there were more allegations and more accusations and, and it led them to actually think that, yes, there is a pattern of abuse and, and abuse of power, sexual abuse, maybe sexual assault. And so then he was, after he had passed away, stripped of, of his credentials and his titles. And so being from the CMA, at least in my experience, others may have had different experiences. I'm not surprised that when they looked into it, there was a bit of a sweeping under the rug. That's how I interpret it. And, and it seems that there is a pattern. If there's in any pattern, it's a pattern of big businesses, and that's what they are. Let's not get it twisted. Big businesses covering for the people that make them the most money. I'll leave it at that. Shonda, I'll turn, Shonda, I'll turn to you. Yeah, I think it's worth... One of the hard things in this series is going to be just naming what we know. And I think what you've named is actually a really important part of this conversation, which is how the institutions respond, right? I wonder if, I, I know we've all done our own research on this. My understanding is the things that we're talking about include allegations that ended in a $250,000 payout and an NDA with a woman who expressed that she was pressured into physical engagement uh, and sending inappropriate images, uh, sorry, sending naked images uh, of herself to Ravi Zacharias, that there were also reports from three of the massage therapists at the massage, the massage therapy place that he co-owned, that he had asked for inappropriate sexual favors, that there were a lot of questions about the masseuse that traveled with him over the course of a long extended period of time, uh, who he insisted he needed for medical purposes because of back issues. Um, are there any other things that have been brought up about him? And the reason I want to mention that is it's more about boundary crossing, pressure, verbal. Um, I would consider some of it emotional abuse, but I wonder what are the concrete things we're talking about in relationship to what he was up to. So then we can talk about why larger institutions responded the ways that they did. I think there's always a di the power dynamic. It doesn't matter whether you're in a secular organization or institution or a religious faith-based organization or institution. There's always that power dynamic there. And when you have people who are, who don't respect or honor the power that they have, that's what it always boils down to. It doesn't matter if it's someone that's in the pulpit or someone that's in the public. 
when you do not respect or honor the office and the power that you have in the person and in the uh, and over the people that are under the sound of your voice and your leadership, you're always going to have an opportunity to misuse, mis, uh, abuse, uh, misappropriate, misrepresent, whatever you want to put there. You're all that opportunity is always going to be there. And what I find is that the institution of the church in general, in general, it doesn't matter. Uh, what religion it is. So there's not any, the CMA is not going to be the redheaded stepchild of this. It, it don't matter if it's Catholic, Pentecostal, Orthodox, uh, Christian, Evangelical, Episcopal, whatever you wanted, the holiness, all of them. You know, there's however many 50, 11 denominations. The, the reflex is always to protect the institution to protect the organization. I I find that churches treat, churches function as it concerns the people that they serve the same way that police departments do. They, they, they act the same way. And what am I talking about? When you, when you have a, a, a rogue police, they call it a rogue police officer that do something just any other, any, at least once a month or twice a month, you're going to find something on the news where some police officer has beat somebody, shot somebody, did something, something. And it always, when it finally comes out after they stop covering up and keeping it under wraps as long as they can, when it finally starts coming out, people say, well, it's just that one bad apple. We're not, they're not all bad. The problem with that is, is if you cover it up, how the organization handles that one, that quote, one bad apple speaks to the whole organization. And yes. the same way police departments protect the organization over the people is the same way churches do it by nature of the of the organization itself. Because why? Because that person represents the organization. Yep. And so if they have to admit that that person didn't do well, didn't do the right thing, violated this or that, then they also have to admit that the organization failed in some way or some fashion. So instead of admitting that there was a failure inside the organization, instead of owning that, they cover it, uh, they move the person to somewhere else, they they make the victim a scapegoat, they do all kinds of things. When you see somebody, okay, so the guy... Uh, he doesn't stop for the blue lights and he gets out and he runs and the police plants his feet and shoots the guy in the back. This happened in North Carolina, I believe, a couple years back. <clears throat> He's not struggling with the guy, nothing. He plants his feet flat on the ground, aims and shoots the guy in the back. There's nothing <laughs> that makes sense about that situation at all. But what you'll see the police department come out and say is we don't know all the facts. Yes, you saw the video. Forget what your lying eyes saw. We need, we don't know all the facts. You don't know what happened before he pulled the trigger. He's in a life and death situation and they have to make decisions on the fly. That's some bullshit. He was yeah. not in a life and death situation. He was in a situation where his fat ass did not want to run. And so he shot that person in the back because that person did not have value to him. And the organization yeah. values the the status and the identity of the organization over the victim. And so now they're going to talk about the victim's criminal record and all this kind of stuff. And that guy is dead and can't defend himself. And that's the same thing institution, religious institutions do. It's the organization and the image of the institution over everything. So, yeah, I think some, you know, some handle it better than others. Right. And some organizations are more prone to abuses than others. Um, we can definitely talk about the factors uh, factors that make that uh, true or not true. I've seen um, abuses handled 
may handle well. That sounds like that's such an oxymoron, right? But I've seen, um, you know, financial abuse handled well by organizations. I've seen abuses handled just horrifically and swept under the rug. Um, I also think it's part of just human hierarchy. We, we fuck this up, uh, quite a lot, just in groups in general. I, am I, you know, when it's a pastor, it, my heart is just broken because that's a relationship that should be sacrosanct. Oh, back back when I was serving a church, that was, I, I mean, I took it so seriously. And we had all sorts of, I mean, I think we did it well. We had all sorts of rules about leaving doors open, not hugging parishioners, because, you know, because for, for just all sorts of safety reasons, never being alone with a child or a youth, ever, ever, ever. Like all those rules were in place for me. So that's an organization that I think did it well, not perfectly, but like we did it well. I think my, what I'm bringing personally to all these conversations is I grew up going to a Catholic school and I was one of like two Protestant kids in my class. And I found out just four or five years ago that the priest when I was in, that was there until I was in third or fourth grade, he had been convicted posthumously of sexual abuse. And the ickiness that I felt because I was the Protestant kid, so we paid more. So I felt like, oh my God, and we didn't go to confession. We weren't alone with priests because of that. So the ickiness I, fe- I felt um, at that time was so big because I was like, oh my God, I was somehow protected and shielded from this. And I, I don't know. I don't know who the victims were that, that hasn't been public and that's as it should be. And so, but that level of kind of privilege and stuff was, is just so gross. So it sent me to therapy in a good way. <laughs> so, so I could deal with all this kind of, so I could deal with all this kind of stuff. So I'm A plus for therapy if that's available. Um, in this day and age, if you are someone who struggles with this, because I kind of had to figure a lot out a lot of those dynamics. Yeah, there is something troubling. And I think that's something that enables this kind of predatory behavior as what we see with Robbie Zacharias. Because, I mean, Robbie Zacharias, if you don't know who he was, um, you know, he was a rock star. He was a apologetic Christian you know, superhero, and people were sharing his YouTube clips, owning the atheists and and slamming the skeptics. And uh, there's dozens of debates where he debates, you know, all these uh, atheists, and he debates all of these, uh, you know, uh, anti-Christian kind of uh, experts and scholars and things like that. And so, you know, everyone they they just put him on this pedestal, right? He wrote books. He did lectures, he did speaking events. Um, and so, so many people, you know, just lifted him up to this level, put him on this huge, huge pedestal. That's a, that's probably the first problem right there. Whether that's happening in the local church level or that's happening on the national or international level. But Robbie was at the top of the heap, um, in his, in his prime, kind of like he can do no wrong. And then, you know, when these allegations initially came out, and they did, right? This is while he was still, a, you know, a, a best-selling author, internationally recognized speaker, still being invited to debates and these kind of things on this high-level platform. You know, these at the first, I think I heard the initial allegations was there was a single person, this the, the woman that says that she had an, a, rela- a relationship with him. She, I think she published some texts that between her and Robbie. Um, and some very inappropriate conversations that were kind of leaked. Um, he, of course, denied that. He said, oh, she's mentally ill. None of this ever happened. It's all in her mind. Um, and then how many people rushed to defend him, right? Without doing an investigation. Let's just say that. Just based on, oh, no, Robbie Zacharias is this Christian rock star. 
this must be an attack of the enemy. These are people that hate what he's doing to the kingdom of, you know, with the kingdom of God and, and, and promoting the gospel. He's just a victim. He's this Christ figure who's being unjustly accused. That's the immediate response of everyone surrounding this guy. Again, without saying, well, and again, at this point, I think we have enough, this has happened so many times that when these kind of allegations initially come up, I think we should have learned from our mistakes to say, when those allegations come up against someone like this, to say, you know what, there's a really good chance this is true because of the of the nature of what this kind of um, position and this kind of structure, hierarchical structure, enables, right? It enables someone like that to operate this way, right? So there's this cushion around someone like Robbie Zacharias of support, of sort of worship, of, you know, this belief that he's incapable of any kind of sins like that. Why? Well, because he's so wise and intelligent and so gifted and the anointing, quote unquote, of God is on him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so a very huge benefit of the doubt is given towards him and any, you know, any women or any, anyone that accuses someone like that is seen as, um, they're a liar. They're, they're trying to bring him down. And I saw, by the way, I remember being, uh, jumping on a couple of, um, Facebook groups when some of this stuff came out, not, not just about the woman, but then there were also things about him lying about, uh, he, he claimed that he had attended and even, uh, was a professor at Oxford and at Cambridge. Turns out later that those, neither of those were true. And he had, he can, he admitted that and all of that stuff. So anyway, those things had just kind of broken around the same time. And I remember being in a Facebook group with other, a Christian Facebook group, just trying to say, Hey, what if this is true? Hey, this seems to be credible. Cause I had, I had gone down a rabbit hole a little bit, um, and went to some of these websites that had published some of the text from the woman and had corroborating witnesses and things like this. And people were not having it. Like, no, how could you do this, Keith? How could you, how could you even for a moment entertain this? Right. It's true. And so, you know, it, it's so funny to hear all of the same people that defended him vigorously. Um, when the initial allegations came out after he died and his own organization had done, uh, had done, uh, an investigation and his own organization said not only that, yes, what you, what you know about is true. There are additional allegations you don't know about that are even worse that we'll tell you about later. That once that happened, all of those people totally changed their tune. And then it suddenly became, well, maybe he wasn't really a Christian. Maybe he didn't believe what he was saying. Maybe he was just, you know, it, that's the initial, that, that's the almost the immediate go-to default position. He wasn't really a believer. Or maybe he was, but he, he lost his faith or blah, blah, blah. And again, not ever really dealing with what creates this kind of environment. What, what, what environment and conditions create this kind of behavior? Can we look at it and acknowledge it so that we can mitigate it in the future? That's, that's the way I wish we would respond and maybe, hopefully, maybe throughout the series, we can identify some things that could be done. Yeah, he was also, I saw in one of the um, one of the articles that he was not a member of a local church. So he was completely on his yeah. own, like doing the big stages, doing the big speeches, but he had no personal guidance or relationship. I'm not sure how much I would have helped in the CMA. I don't know. I don't know the church well enough. Um, but that also kind of speaks to the um, hubris. Yeah. Or my, my perceived hubris of him too. And I like, I don't ever think I watched him, but I do like, as soon as I saw his picture, I was like, oh yeah, I know that guy. Like I'd see him on TV and then flip through. Yep. Yep. And, 
And so I think this is getting to a really important issue because y'all have been saying like, this isn't just about one person, right? This is about a whole system. And it's funny because I think we often think in terms of, well, there's the conservative churches that have no systems of accountability, which, you know, that's not untrue. That is absolutely true. But I want us to all be very aware of the ways in which lack of accountability shows up, right? Like there's this amazing uh, meme from back in the early days of BLM where, you know, the question was raised, how do we stop the horrific anti-Black violence in this country? And, you know, it's like Black people, colon, or no, sorry, white people, colon, love, we'll stop it through love. And Black people are like, no, we need this policy around uh, <laughs> around police violence and we need this policy around yeah, yeah. the mass industrial, you know, the prison industrial complex and we need changes in the immigration, you know, reforms right now. And then white people are like, love, love will solve everything. But I think this is a really important thing because Cornell West, Dr. West says that justice is what love looks like in public. And- yeah. Regardless of our political positions, if we're not dealing seriously with structures of accountability, and the reality is, whatever we do, we are actually accountable to somebody. Who do we want to be accountable to? And how do we want to build out systems and structures that are accountable to people who are the most vulnerable? I think that's a big part of uh, what we need to talk about. I had hopeful, positive, here's the like thing that inspired me in the midst of this story. Are we ready for that pivot or should I hold oh, it? Oh, yes, please. So, <laughs> y'all, did y'all come across Friendly Banjo Atheist? <laughs> friendly Banjo Atheist. Is that Friendly a- Banjo Atheist. I can't believe you didn't hear this. Okay, so this is absolutely <laughs> the glorious, glorious part of this story. My favorite thing about the Bible is how... God always uses people that all of society or all of a particular group refuses to recognize their power and their gifts. And that's who God uses. This is a perfect example of this because friendly banjo atheist is Steve Bauman, the most hippie looking lawyer from California you could possibly imagine, who spends five years documenting all of the, you know, abuses that Zacharias has had engaged in. So I think there's something amazing about the fact that who's the CMA least likely to listen to, who are Ravi Zacharias's followers least listen, uh, least likely to listen to, an atheist. And who's the person who played such a key role in making sure that justice shone through? the friendly banjo atheist. I'm a fan of hippie lawyers, so that's my favorite part of this story. Did he have like a blog or something? Yeah, raviwatch.com. Oh my God. He's also got a YouTube station if you want to hear him play the the uh, banjo. He's great. Yeah, yeah. I think that's actually the guy that I had discovered early, early on because he, he did a wonderful job of collecting all the data and all the information. Um, and I think that was, see, here's the thing. So, when I was in that Facebook group trying to say, hey, you know, here's what I've seen. Here's what I found. And then I would share a link. Well, it was from Friendly Banjo Atheist. I'm like, oh, Keith, how dare you quote an atheist? Of course he wants to attack Ravi because he hates what he's doing for Jesus. And it's like, no, dude, these are just facts. Like, can you just investigate the facts? Like, But it's like they attack the source immediately. Like, Anything to, to, oh, no, no, this can't be, it's, it's almost like sticking your fingers in your ears, like, la, 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 this can't be true, this can't be true, this can't be true. But it, but again, like, after a while, it's like, well, no, it's true over and over and over again. 
And again, like, I, I think it's wonderful that we've talked about this, the lack of accountability, right? That there have to be systems in place like that where there is some accountability. And in, as we're going to go through this series, you know, we're, we're actually going to talk about some instances and situations where there was some better, at least, kind of accountability structures in place that sometimes were followed well, sometimes not so well. Um, but but to, all that to say, you can have those perfect, those really good, thoughtful sort of, you know, buffers in place to mitigate some of the stuff, but it, it may not necessarily eliminate it completely. In other words, like we we may have to always deal with this kind of thing happening. Now, maybe we can talk about that going forward too. Like what, what are things that could really, really help take care of it? But, but, but to me personally, I think that there's just something about being in a place of leadership within, specifically within like a church or, or a, a religious organization. Um, and I've talked about this a couple of times in different contexts, but I've had this experience before. And I'm sure all of you may have had this similar experience before. Uh, hopefully you can relate to this, where I have been like speaking to a group of people, it could be a Bible study, it could be a church group, it could be, you know, anything like that, but in a, in a religious context. And, and I, I've had this experience where I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, I have these people in my hand. I could do anything. I could say anything. And I think there's two different kinds of people. When you find yourself in that situation and you realize, oh my gosh, I have these people in my hand, your feeling is either oh shit, <laughs> right? Like, oh no, 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 no. I need to, let's just stop right now and let's back out of this. No, no, please don't do this. I'm not your guru. I'm not your leader. Don't, don't just like, oh, Keith said this or Keith is so wonderful. No, 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 please. Like I, I instantly back away from that stuff like well, as quick as possible. Like, no, 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 no. But sometimes, you know, someone's in that situation and they, they suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I've got these people in my hand. And they go, oh, what, what can I get away with? Wow. Like, what else could I do? Right. Um, and I think that's just part of it too. Like you can be in that situation. And a lot of it just comes down to in that moment when you realize that, do you see that as an opportunity to exploit the situation for your own good? Or do, or do you like resist that? Like, oh, no, no, I'm not here to exploit people. I don't want people to be exploited through what I do. I really want to help them and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I've experienced that kind of stuff. I've talked to people even that are like yoga instructors. Uh, I have a good friend who's a yoga instructor. And she said, yeah, Keith, I had the exact same thing. She said, I had people coming up after like one or two classes with me and just with stars in their eyes saying, oh my gosh, you've helped me so much. And and then things like, what, should I divorce my husband? Should I quit my job? And and they will do whatever she said, right? And then she's like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> so part of it is there's this dynamic, right? There's this structure that there's this thing that happens between sort of the guru, the leader, the teacher, the pastor, or whatever. And sometimes people want too badly to uh, extend that kind of power and control to, to someone. And that in itself is unhealthy, right? We have to also address that and recognize that sometimes those, those uh, dynamics are going on in groups. That in itself is something that leads to this kind of abuse. Um, also, I want to circle back to what I said earlier, one of the things that shields the police officers from consequences is something we call qualified immunity. Y'all know about that term? And basically you can't prosecute a civil servant or whatever the case, unless what they have done is so egregious or so obviously whatever the case is. The problem is there's systems in place to to protect them yes. from 
the consequences. And usually, so something that will have you or I sitting in jail, then get away with. We watching that in the news right now with the former president. Let Uh me go up to the White House and walk away with 300 something (laughs) documents or (laughs) okay, or 50 boxes of do I can't steal a pen from the White House. Okay, <laughs> they gonna have my black ass somewhere getting questioned if I take a paperweight off the desk. You understand what I'm saying? But someone who has a certain position with a certain, yeah. you know, amount of respect for the position, and it's almost like they'll honor the office or the title or the position. They'll give the yeah. office the title and the position more honor than the person does, and then yes. they'll make everybody bow down to that. The problem is that there's the systems in place that allow for that to be perpetuated. And that's what happened with, you know, Zacharias, or however we're going to say his name. And the fact that a lot of this stuff is coming out after he's passed away, like, oh, we're going to honor him while he's living, but now that he's dead, we can go ahead and say and do whatever. You know, it's it's just all these systems that are in place to protect an image that isn't even real. And then when somebody calls it out, they come, they become the heretic. They become the issue. They become the, what'd you say, all those people coming up, oh, they just don't want the gospel to go forth. The the automatic reflex of those who have been following the ministry, they're so invested. And maybe that's the issue. Maybe that's the issue. They're so invested in the image of this person and in what they have personally received from the person that it's hard for them to imagine that someone else has received something else, right? So if, which, if your teachings and... You know, that reminds me of something. I'm going to get to this thing. If their teachings have brought life and light to you, if uh, if there's something that they said to you or helped you with that was life-changing, it's so hard to accept that they have harmed somebody else when they have helped you. It's so hard to accept that. And I think they rely on that. They rely on having enough people that they have helped to cover up the people that they have harmed. They rely on the one truth to float the 99 lies. Or the 99 lie, the 99 truths to float the one lie. They rely on that. You know, it's funny that you bring this up about um, the similarity to uh, the police issue. Because it's you're right. It, I think it's the exact same kind of situation. When I, I've seen this reaction, especially in my Christian friends. So like when there's a shooting, right? And this is in the past, but there's been a couple of times where... Um, I have a particular friend who would always... When I would be critical of the shoot of the, of the police officer shooting the black man, my friend would say, oh, you, you know, how dare you attack the police? So, so what they do is, like you said, they take, they take a, a criticism of a specific person, so in this case, a police officer, but it's the same thing if it's a pastor, right? And they make that attack or that criticism of that particular person an attack on the entire institution. You hate police officers. You hate the church. You hate pastors or whatever, or Christianity. Um, instead of going, no, I mean, so here's what I find interesting though. It does, this doesn't happen in all other, in all other cases. So for example, let's say there was a school teacher and a school teacher sexually molested and abused a couple of students in his class. And we exposed it. We, we had, we talked about it. We, and we tried, we put him, we arrested him and we put him on trial. Would it suddenly be, oh, you hate the education system. You hate teachers. You're attacking teachers. I mean, where would you be, Keith, without teachers? How dare you attack teachers this way? Isn't it interesting that that doesn't happen when it's a teacher and it's not, it's not received as an attack on the entire education system. It's like, no, 
that guy did something wrong and abused his authority and power. That's the way it should be if it's a police officer or a pastor or any of these other institutions. But see, you're right. You have politicians. So you're right. See, it's it's the institution that has created a defense mechanism so that anytime someone criticizes or attacks or exposes the, the, the crimes or the sins of one of them, it's like, oh, you've attacked all of us. You hate all of us. And instead, what it should be is if anybody should be the first one to stand up and say, that's not the way a police officer acts. It should be another police officer with integrity. Thank to say, you. Right? No, no, they say, you know what, guys? We got this one. We'll take care of this. We take care of our own. We expose people that, that make us look bad, right? That's right. And that's what it should be. And it should be the same way for the church. It should be, oh, well, that guy did what? Oh, no, no, listen, guys, we'll take care of this. Now, the problem is the church has tried to do that, right? Especially with like with the Catholic priests and things like that. Oh no, we'll take care of it internally, but what they what they don't take care of, that's the problem, right? They they cover it up, they hide it, they bury it, they move the guy around to some other place, they pay off some people. Um, but it, because, because again, the goal is to protect the institution, not to protect the victims. And that's that's a very critical thing. Yeah, so it sounds like we're we're Wanting to get into in, in kind of future episodes, kind of origin and cause, like w- what is it that uh, internally can even allow someone to be this hypocritical, um, to, to rise to this level of hypocrisy and then like institutionally and societally, you know, how does, you know, how does this even work? Um, so, um, I think we'll be talking to about like red flags about what to be on the lookout for, kind of in any institution, um, maybe especially in a church. Um, and I know a lot of our listeners are like, yeah, yeah, not darkening the doors of a church. No worry. Uh, the red flags apply to pretty much any organization that you're ever going to go to um, as well. So I don't know, does that seem, does that seem about fair for um, where we're going, what we want to do and starting to wrap up for today? Yeah. We've opened, we've opened the floodgates. We're not going to close them yet. We're going to yeah. talk about it next time. Uh, I think we're going to be getting to the Southern Baptist Convention next week, everyone's favorite. As well as lifting up the stories of who is bringing stuff to light, lifting up the stories of who has not just survived, but thrived and actually contributed to a better world, even despite what they've gone through. I think all of that's going to matter a ton in in the way we think about these stories, because in the midst of these horrifying, horrifying stories, there are a lot of heroes, sheroes, and theros to lift up as well. Yeah, we don't need to give Ravi any more more airtime or (sighs) coins from us. We we also want to acknowledge um, that for anybody who's listening, who this has brought up some of your own experiences, some some stuff that you need to work through, there is an organization called RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. They have a hotline a sexual assault hotline that's confidential, free, 24-7. It's 1-800-656-HOPE. We are, we stand with you as you seek the help that you deserve. December, play us out. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before we jump into that, I do have one thing. I kept thinking to myself, I'm sad to be co-hosting because I'm not going to curse on a podcast as much as um, some of our legendary people of the past. But I feel like we should end every episode in this particular way. And so today I would like to say, fuck Ravi Zacharias. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I love that. I love that. That is a great, that's a great close uh, to the hour. (laughs) 
<laughs> Listen, I want to thank you for listening and invite everybody to go to heretichappyhour.com where you can find some interesting stuff, some quizzes, some free reads, a bookstore where we feature books from our heretics of the hour at 50% off retail. So check us out at heretichappyhour.com. I don't know if y'all knew this, but we have a free Facebook group. It's called Heresy After Hours. There's a couple of thousand heretics who are really having fun and great conversations. So just as an example, uh, in honor of our film series, I posted, you know, if you could live for 14,000 years, if you could live for forever, would you? Uh, would be yes or no. And it got interesting conversations, including someone who was trying to shame me for not paying attention to the New Testament even though I'm a New Testament scholar and take the New Testament seriously. Um, and I told him to stop preaching at us. So if you want to be part of a conversation like that, come on to Heresy After Hours, free Facebook group for everyone. That's right. And um, I just want to say, uh, if you are one of our lovely, beautiful listeners who support us on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash heretic happy hour. I love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I know Shonda wanted to end with an F you, but I want to end with I love you. We love you, all of you who support us. Thank you for supporting us and um, all that great, cool stuff that you get over there on Patreon, as well as access to our private Facebook group, Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. Um, and if you don't support us yet, would you please do that? It would, be, it would mean so much to us. Um, we'd love to be able to share all this extra bonus content we create for you. Um, and you can do that at patreon.com slash Heretic Happy Hour. I'm really hoping that one of those Facebook groups features the questions that are lifted up in Matt Stone's thoughts. Uh, but whether they are or not, we want to make sure that you, you take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast, partly because it helps uh, our ratings, but also because it helps people like you find us. And that's how we keep the movement growing. Second one, down the hatch. Yep. We've solved the problem. I'm so happy. Oh, yes, once again, we have solved the world's problems. That's what we do here.